You are listening to Humanities Unbound, a public humanities podcast produced by Taft Research Center, a center dedicated to excellence in humanities and social science research located at the University of Cincinnati. Taft Research Center is generously funded by the Charles Phelps Taft Memorial Fund. My name is Dr. Amy Lind, and I'm the director of the Taft Research Center. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Nancy Tawana, Professor of Philosophy and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. Dr. Tawana is a co-founder of the Rock Ethics Institute at Penn State, and her research focuses on the intersection of science, gender, and social justice. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Tawana. I wanted to start by asking you a bit about your background and particularly how you became interested in studying climate change and social justice. My background is as someone who does feminist philosophy of science. So I've always been taking a look at the way in which gender intersects with the ways in which we think about science, but also the types of questions that we ask in science. So when I began to work with a group of scientists who were working on climate science, it was a pretty natural movement to start to think about the role of gender in terms of climate change. Now, initially, that meant thinking about impacts and differential impacts, because that's the most obvious movement. One of the things that a number of scholars in this field have documented is that because of differences in gender roles, men and women are impacted differently from the various different types of impacts of climate change. For example, if you have a country in which primarily women are responsible for farming, and you have a series, say, of droughts, one of the things that that impacts is the time it will take for those women to farm because they're usually transporting water. And that may require going out further in order to be able to carry water in, in order to keep the crops alive. But you can't make any simple generalizations because the same type of phenomena, droughts, have had huge impacts on men who are farmers as well. For example, in Australia, where there's been a series of droughts that have had huge impacts on the farms there, where men are the primary um, farmers. One of the things that's happened is an impact on their livelihood, but also an impact on how they think about themselves as men. And as a result, there have been much higher levels of depression and also much higher levels of domestic violence. Would you say then that women are more affected by climate change than men, or how would you view that? I would always say women are often differentially impacted by climate change. But even that is too simple a way of putting it because you have to look at how women are positioned and when you look at impacts on men, how they're positioned. So a woman who is living in poverty is gonna be impacted in a much different way than a woman who is living in an affluent setting. The difference is that the numbers of women living in poverty is much higher than the numbers of men living in poverty globally. And because of women's general responsibility for the caretaking of small children, when a woman lives in poverty, 
she's struggling not just for her own survival, but for the survival of her children as well. So it puts a differential impact on her. You know, there's an old slogan that came out of the United Nations that I'm sure you're familiar with that that illustrates how women own less land than men, mm-hmm. have less capital, mm-hmm. and work harder. I'm wondering if um, land rights is, is related to this issue as well in terms of the gender impacts and per- perhaps also the racial or ethnic impacts. So land rights certainly circulate in complex ways in these issues. So in those countries where women are the primary farmers, for example, they're much less likely than males to own land. In fact, in the figures that I'm most familiar with is there are only 20% of women who farm in um, developing countries or the least developed countries are likely to own the land. And what that means is that they have fewer resources. They don't have capital in the land that they're working and oftentimes can't use the land as a resource. And that means that adaptation programs need to be attentive to the differences between men and women. But again, not to generalize them, but rather to look at the specificities of the ways in which gender roles in that particular community at that particular time are having an impact on stressors and vulnerabilities to climate impacts. Mm-hmm. Can you, just to take a step back, can you tell us a bit about what you mean by adaptation strategies and also what you see as the top mm-hmm. issues we face with regard to addressing global c- climate change and its origins? So there are two responses that are generally accepted in terms of climate change. One is mitigation. Mitigation is an effort to change the ways in which we, for example, um, power our countries in order to switch to renewables that are less likely to emit greenhouse gases. There are mitigation practices that are designed to remove some of the greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. However, another response to impacts that are already happening or impacts that will happen because we don't mitigate is adaptation. And adaptation measures are designed to assist people in continuing to live or live differently in areas in which the weather has impacted how they can live. So for example, we've done some I've done some work in New Orleans and New Orleans now is dealing with much higher flood risks than they've ever experienced before, in part, but not solely because of rising sea level rise due sea level rise due to climate change. Now adaptation means thinking about how they can mitigate some of the vulnerabilities that they have to climate change. In New Orleans, that's by building a levee and trying to protect the city from higher storm surges. Adaptation happens in lots of different ways. Um, Sometimes it's encouraging people to plant crops that are more drought resistant. Um, In other cases, it might be to give individuals 
resources so that they don't have to cut down the forest area in in their community. But it's very important that our adaptation or mitigation practices pay attention to the specificities of both gender roles as well as roles concerning an ethnic group or racial formations because you can actually make, for example, the impacts on gender roles much more negative if you're not attentive to that. There was one case in Australia where one crop that was common was replaced by another crop, which was much more drought resistant and was much more successful in growing in the area given the precipitation changes. But what the specialists didn't realize is they replaced a crop that was considered in that community as a crop that was owned by women to a crop that was owned by men. And what that meant was that the men took the profits from that crop, whereas in the past with the previous crop, women owned those the, the economic returns. And instead of the, the money from the crop going back into the family to feed the children, men were using it for things they wanted. And families were starting to fall apart. So even with adaptation, we have to be very careful about attending to the specific dynamics within a community, typically ones due to um, gender roles, but also due to systems of oppression that are already in place. So to go back to that New Orleans story, when they increase the protection from the levy, one of the things that happened, and it wasn't intended, but the land that was the most protected by the levy started to be able to garner much higher rents or much higher property values. And as a result, the poor in the city, and in New Orleans, a large percentage of the poor in the city are blacks, were no longer able to afford to live within the area of the city that was protected by the levy. And if you live outside the levy, in part because of what happens when you have a levy that's diverting water, those areas become even more at risk during storms. Mm-hmm. You, In your research, you've talked about redis- redistributive justice and how that relates to climate change and adapta- adaptation strategies. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a bit more on the New Orleans example and Mm. tell us what you mean by that and why it's important, and particularly with regard to thinking about race as well. Mm -hmm. So there's various forms of justice that we might want to take into consideration and think carefully about as we start to address climate change issues. And let me just go through the different types. One is distributive justice, which pays attention to differential impacts. And one of the things that we're seeing is that the differential impacts from climate change are a huge problem. People who are already more vulnerable due to economic disadvantage or various structural inequities are much more likely to not have the capacity to adapt or respond 
when impacts and changes from climate change occur. So many people feel that as we start to think forward to adaptation, we have to not do it generally. Let's make sure that the city of Cincinnati, for example, is protected against um, higher temperatures or increasing precipitation causing floods, but to look to the parts of Cincinnati where the people who have the least resources, often because of economic disadvantage, to look to those areas and protect those areas at a higher level than we might protect the areas in which people have more resources to um, adapt to the impacts. Redistributive justice is an argument that in order for people to have the resources to adapt, we have to address past inequities and the ways in which past inequities have caused individuals to be far more vulnerable. And that might mean increased um, Social resources might mean better education for the least well-off. It might mean that we direct our adaptation funds, and we do this to some extent. Um, the Frameworks Convention and some of the protocols do direct resources in terms of economic resources to the least developed countries. Procedural justice is another very important component of justice. One of the things we've found out is that women have historically had very little voice in um, the climate politics. So at the Frameworks Convention where the protocols are debated, the numbers of women representatives have been very low until relatively recently when there's really been an effort to bring more women to the table. But even in terms of the science, and remember when we're talking about bringing science to um, providing resources for communities, if you don't have scientists who are attentive to the needs of women, you're much less likely to have adaptation practices that will benefit all. And it's not always the case that if someone is a woman, they will be attentive to gender concerns. But it's certainly the case that if they're a feminist scientist, they will be attentive to gender dynamics as well as other systems of disadvantage that intersect with gender. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Has a philosopher of science who has focused on ethics and I'm thinking more broadly um, has a humanities scholar. How, what, how do you view humanities scholars and advocates as best addressing these issues in our research but also with broader publics? So my training as a philosopher of science and in particular doing work in women's studies and being in the early waves of feminist science studies, I became very attentive to the ways in which values are embedded in scientific practice. The old perspective of science as completely value-free is actually an ina inaccurate view of science. There are values that are part of science, 
um, oftentimes epistemic values having to do with how we go about knowing. But those often can have impacts on the ethical import of application of those theories. And as theorists in that do science studies have become more aware of these connections between epistemic and ethical issues, there's been a greater awareness of the importance of paying attention to how our very scientific theories, which we think are just telling us about the facts, actually do more than that, and to pay attention to the values embedded in science to make sure that the impact that we're having on society is one that is for uh, is is an ethically acceptable and ethically responsible impact. Thank you. You spoke earlier a bit about land rights, um, and I know you've written a bit about decolonization. I'm wondering if you see a link between indigenous struggles for land rights in sovereignty and climate change, and if so, can, can you just explain very briefly how you view that? So the relationship between indigenous land rights and climate change is a complex one that happens differently in different places. For example, one of the most egregious uh, problems is a mitigation effort to restore forests called Red Plus. In many cases, the idea is to take what's considered barren land and plant forests on them in order to capture um, carbon. The problem is that that so-called barren land is often very importantly used by indigenous peoples, but it's seen as not um, owned by them, and thus people don't even realize the importance of that land to people. On the flip side, there have been instances like the Inuit in um, North, parts of North America who are losing lifestyles and lifeways because of the warming temperatures and melting ice sheets that don't allow them to continue the lifeways that they have always lived. One of the things we have to remember in North America is most of the land we live on is land that we've taken from indigenous people. And we might want to rethink how we use land and how that use of land is in large part responsible for the problems we're facing today. What would you say is the single contributing factor to human-made climate change today? How would you answer that question? It's hard to pick just one example, but if I had to, I would say high levels of, com of consumption. A lot of us consume more than we need to consume. We've started to move to a very disposable economy. We don't, things don't have a long lifespan in our economy, sometimes because they're designed to have a short shelf life, and sometimes because of our choices. We don't want to drive the same car for 10 years. We don't want to use the same phone for 10 years. I think we have to very much think about our responsibility to not only other people, but to 
ecosystems and other life forms here on Earth and rethink the way in which we consume and dispose so quickly of materials because all of that consumption is leading to greenhouse gas Mm -hmm. emissions. Particularly in the United States, uh, how do you view the use of automobiles? One of the things that we did in the United States was to remove public transportation. Um, I used to live in the city of Dallas that had a very nice uh, tram system that they removed at a certain point when the automobile industry was trying to encourage everyone to own their own car. Well, now we not only own our own cars, most family own multiple cars, usually one per adult. In order to address that problem, we really need to support inner city transportation. We need to bring back those rail lines. We need to really support ways for people to move through particularly dense areas like cities without using cars. And it's wonderful to live in a place where there is a one a good metro system, and many of our cities have been putting those back in play. But in the meantime, there are things like bikes, which are wonderful ways with bike lanes, if we can start putting bike lanes in so that they're safe, for people not only to get around more easily, but also to exercise while they're doing it. It's a win-win. What would you say is, is a strong, positive example of a country or a region that has addressed climate change well? So there are various different example countries uh, or regions. I think California is a, is a state we might look to at this point as one that in the middle of a country that hasn't as a whole embraced its responsibility towards um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is doing some very good work to really think about how they can live differently and also protect the livelihoods of of their citizens. California struggles with water security issues, and there's a lot of attention to how to make that happen. Public transportation has been being built in a lot of the major cities. In terms of adaptation to sea level rise, the Netherlands, of course, are the star country in that. But that has meant that the country has devoted a tremendous amount of money towards their um, dike system in order to protect the country. And they have much higher standards of protection than we would ever dream of in the United States. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Do you. Is there anything else you'd like to share that I haven't asked? One of the things that is becoming more clear is paying attention to the legacy of racism as it functions within a particular country and the ways in which that legacy has made certain groups of people more vulnerable to the impacts of extreme weather events like we're experiencing Um, with climate change. In the United States, for example, both the uh, history of Jim Crow and before it slavery has disadvantaged large groups of African Americans, making them far more vulnerable to climate change. But we 
also have to pay attention to the ways in which the labors of groups of people who have been socially disadvantaged have actually contributed to climate change. It's because that labor has been either illegally used um, at low cost through convict slave um, labor or paid very low wages, as we do right now with farm laborers, that we're continuing to, whether it be mine fossil fuels or um, grow crops with pesticides that are actually harming the environment with impunity. We need to address some of these structural causes of inequities in the process of addressing climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, In relation to that, uh, some observers have have commented that the growing refugee and asylum crisis is related to climate change. Do you agree with that? And what is your view on that? It's certainly the case that in terms of climate migration, changing weather and patterns are having complex impacts um, on people within countries. Everything from people having to move within country. In fact, most of the climate migrants right now move within a country. You saw that with um, in New Orleans with a number of people from the New Orleans area who didn't have enough money to return once they had left. Um, never coming back and settling in other parts of the United States. And that same phenomena is happening in other countries. In South Africa, where there's been a number of climate-related problems, one of the things that happens is that men often move into urban areas, leaving their family in rural areas, causing stress on families. But it's certainly the case in the U.S. Department of Defense is keeping an eye on this, that climate-related impacts in countries are causing um, higher levels of violence within countries and sometimes possibly contributing to war. And all of those are situations in which people often have to leave for purposes of of staying safe and staying alive. So I think that you can find a signature of climate change running through some of migration policies, but it's not as clear cut as some might believe it. I mean, Dorian would have hit the Bahamas no matter what, but those warmer ocean waters fueled the intensity of that hurricane. Now there are thousands of people in the northern Bahamas who cannot continue to live there until it's rebuilt. They're going to have to go somewhere. So are they a climate migrant? Yes and no. Thank you. Um, As a very final question, last night you used a term, moral obligation. It wasn't it was slightly different than that, but I'm, I'm curious. Moral responsibility. Moral responsibility. I'm curious if you could talk a bit about what is our moral responsibility as humans to address this climate crisis. So I think as we start to think about our responsibilities towards the impacts that are happening from human-caused climate impacts, 
we need to take a step back and recognize that humans are intricately interrelated with the other life forms and ecosystems that we're a part of and that we sustain and that sustain us. We can no longer afford to see ourselves as separate and separable and able to do whatever we want with um, our environments. But we also need to recognize that what we do in any country impacts people in other countries. We're much we're a much larger population right now with a global economy. And what happens in one country can have widespread effects in other countries. So I believe that it's important that people appreciate our ethical relationality to others, to other humans, to other life forms, and to the ecosystems that sustain us all. And that means that we have an ethical responsibility to support life and well-being, not just of humans, but of other life forms. Thank you so much. The music for Humanities Unbound is Reverie Small Theme and You'll Never Know Where You'll Wake Up, both by Ghost and licensed by the Creative Commons. Humanities Unbound is hosted and executively produced by the Taft Research Center Director, Dr. Amy Lind. Sean Keating Crawford is a producer and manager, and Caitlin Lusher is a producer and the editor for the podcast. Technical equipment and support are provided by the Student Technical Resources Center at the University of Cincinnati and the STRC director, Jay Sennard. Episode transcripts are transcribed by Carrie Eason and are available on the Taft Research Center website. Stay tuned for more episodes of Humanities Unbound.